0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 2nd of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster. On today's show...
1: This is the moment to chuck checkers. Yeah!
0: Like him or loathe him, Boris Johnson is tipped to be Britain's next Prime Minister. How would the rest of the world take to Prime Minister Johnson? Also ahead, her husband called them shithole states. Now Melania Trump is in Ghana on the first leg of a week-long tour of Africa in her first solo jaunt as America's First Lady. My guests, Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Guardian and The Independent Newspapers, and Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks, will be discussing these and some of the day's other top stories, including... It's been two years since Brexit and Donald Trump's election to the White House upended the world order. Can liberals take things back to how they were? And as officials try to fix the problems on New York's bus system, we ask if it's time for all commuters to have a say on shaping their transport networks. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are The Guardian and independent columnist Mary Djejewski and Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risk. Welcome to both of you to the programme. First, let's head to the British city of. Birmingham, where the ruling Conservative Party is holding its annual conference. Delegates are gearing up for tomorrow's key address by Prime Minister Theresa May. But it is Boris Johnson, her ex-foreign secretary, who's been grabbing the headlines. During a speech to a fringe meeting, he attacked the Prime Minister's Brexit negotiations in what many see as a shameless pitch for her job. Is Mrs May on borrowed time and is it inevitable that Boris will succeed her? Charles, the interesting thing about Boris is that he hasn't actually said, I want to be Prime Minister. We assume, though, that that's exactly what he wants.
1: This is the longest and loudest campaign without a declaration of candidacy that we've seen in a very long time. But you have to assume that Boris Johnson is not making all these, this noise and not making all these speeches without having a leadership challenge in the back of his mind. There is no question in anyone else's mind at least, uh, that Boris Johnson wants to be prime minister, has always wanted to be prime minister. And he's certainly doing everything that a future or potential prime minister would do.
0: Mary, has he overplayed his hand? Because at times his uh, campaigning, shall we say, does seem a little bit shameless and... um taking the mickey a little bit too far, shall we say.
2: Well, that's true, and um, that was certainly obvious from the front pages of a lot of today's papers, where we saw um, a very consciously posed picture um, starring Boris Johnson um, apparently disporting himself through a field of what um, the specialists said was actually grass, but was clearly intended to be a wheat field. As in the green grass, not the the other sort of grass. Absolutely. Well, that's that's what we sort of think. Um, But The allusion, the reference was supposed to be something that Theresa May had said um, about what was her worst um, offence when she was young, when she said it was um, running through a field of wheat that belonged to a farmer and she shouldn't have been doing it. So that was the context for this. Um, I think before this week's Conservative Party conference, People were tending to think that Boris had overplayed his hand. And the initial day and a half of the conference suggested that indeed he had. Practically every speaker from the platform laid into Boris. Um, It was clear that there was a sort of, um, the message had gone out that Boris was to be treated as, well, enemy number two if Jeremy Corbyn was enemy number one. Jeremy
0: mm. yeah. Corbyn, of course, being the the Labour, the leader of the opposition Labour Party, yes. just to contextualise it. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> um, and the problem with this is that there's a very big distinction between Boris as seen by the leading lights of the government and MPs and Boris as seen by the grassroots and when you saw the reception for him at the conference today this suggested to me that his leadership ambitions were certainly not over um, and that if he'd overplayed his hands then it certainly wasn't at the grassroots. Now, it may be that they're running behind um, the opinion at the top of the party, but that may not matter. Mm. So he has the support of,
0: of the, the the grassroots, if the reactions at uh, the Conservative Party conference are anything to go by. But Charles, I guess the problem is, is that in some ways he's condemned by his past because he does have this clown's image. And you can't have a clown leading the country when it's going through one of the most decisive moments of its recent history. You need to have somebody, I guess, who is stable and
1: credible to lead Britain through the Brexit landscape. Yeah, this whole question of impression is so relevant with Boris Johnson because he puts his character out there, really, as his most salient feature. It's not necessarily his ideas. It's not necessarily his politics. It's him as an individual and his personality that everybody sees first. And this takes me back to the question that you posed at the very opening of the broadcast. And that is, what does the rest of the world think of him? I mean, the grassroots may be behind him and he may be a sort of Marmite style politician in the UK. You either love him or you hate him. But I'm wondering what the rest of the world thinks. And this opens up an extremely rich vein of comparison, because we look at our own politicians very differently from the way the rest of the world looks at politicians. And and one of the great examples of that, of course, is German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who Europeans, and certainly in the United States, you know, she was being called the savior of the free world after the election of Donald Trump in the United States and domestically she is an extremely conflictual character and not universally loved or respected. And so I was thinking, you know, what does the rest of the world think about Boris Johnson? And I went back to one of his first big international appearances and that was at the closing ceremonies of the Beijing Olympics in 2008 when he gets up and sort of accepts the torch, if you will, from the current host right before London hosted the Olympics. And, you know, he gets up there and his hair is a mess and his tie is on. But that's his trademark, really, isn't it? and, And the suit is disheveled. And that created an indelible image of this individual. You know, he's traveled extensively since then, both as the mayor of London and, of course, as foreign minister until he resigned. But I really wonder whether he's got the sort of stature and the ranking on the global stage to become the head of state.
0: But I guess if if he were to get it, it would have a transformative effect. One would assume... No,
2: I mean that is absolutely um, a point that people change um, by virtue of the office. Now, it's true that Donald Trump hasn't changed that much and Boris Johnson would probably not change that much but the office gives them something extra. Um, But I would also say that yes, I mean he has this shambolic image um, but um, as you said, I mean he, he, he he has this character in this trademark which actually stood him in very good stead as mayor of London. Now that's not the same thing as being prime minister but he also has a huge international cheerleader in Donald Trump mm. who practically well, he's seen as him. a nicer
0: version of Trump in yes, some but circles. Don-
2: but Trump actually during his, his visit to the UK um, he as near as damned it endorsed Boris Johnson for prime minister, which was an extraordinarily undiplomatic sort of unacceptable thing to do. But he did. On the other hand, you look across Europe, which is where, if you like, the UK needs to make and keep its friends at the moment. And Boris Johnson is really not liked at all there. Not least because he referred at one point to uh, as though there was, um, a, as it were, a resurrection of the Third Reich, mm. um, with um, Germany being so um, powerful in the European Union. So he's not—he's—he's he, he's suspected and he's disliked and he's regarded as a very sort of superficial and irresponsible on the other side mm. of the channel. Let, let's take
0: it back to this idea of, of, of the grassroots, because yes, he, he's very popular in conservative party circles. But beyond that, the nation at large, is it possible that having an endorsement from Donald Trump and someone like Steve Bannon
1: is the kiss of death when you have to appeal to the rest of the country? Well, precisely what I was going to say in response to Mary's comments are that, yes, having some sort of bromance between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump um, might be tactically an interesting asset. I think strategically, it may turn out to burn him in the end, and that you saw how many thousands of people turned out in the streets of central London when Donald Trump came to visit the UK. Um, could you imagine that same number of people coming out to protest a sitting prime minister? Uh, and so, yeah, you know, grassroots matter more than ever before. You know, this, this, concept, this concept of having a base as, as the key to staying in office. And, and winning re-election, uh, but you can alienate that base with one false move. Donald Trump is not enormously popular in the UK, and he's even <laughs> less <laughs> popular. You know, he's not all that popular in the United States. He's not all that popular in the UK. But you know what they think about him in most of Europe, which has got to be the focus of the of you know the current or the next prime minister's attention for the next several months. I guess his image could do with a bit of bit of a makeover. But, but before we
0: close down this subject and, and move over to the United States of America, one other a point about this is that Boris may have the ambition to be the Prime Minister but do you think he's also underestimated the current holder of this office because there were so many people who predicted that Theresa May wouldn't last the distance and yet here she is more determined than ever to hold on
2: Yes and I think two things about Theresa May. Um, one of them is that I think the reason that she's managed to keep her job is because basically nobody except maybe Boris Johnson actually wants it um, it's, it's a Very, um, it's an absolute nightmare job at the moment with the state of the Europe negotiations. Um, And the other thing is that um, a year ago, after she'd lost, practically lost the election, um, I was very critical of her and thought that she'd run a very bad campaign and had really not earned the right to carry on as prime minister. But actually, over the last year, I think she's probably done quite a good job um, of keeping enough people on board in the Commons to get the Europe legislation through. Um, And I think she may very well succeed. We've seen all these predictions that are going to, be crisis vote, crisis vote, the government could be defeated. It's not actually happened and I think it probably won't happen. So I think, um, I mean, my betting is that she will be able to stay in office, and she'll feel responsible to stay in office, that it's her duty, um, until the Brexit process is complete. When that happens, I think she'll resign.
0: Right, so Boris will have to loiter in the shadows or not a little bit longer. But um, we were talking about the President of the United States. Let's now shift the spotlight to his other half, Melania Trump, or Melania Trump. She is in Ghana on the opening leg of her first official trip as America's First Lady. Now, over the next few days, she'll be dropping in on Kenya, Malawi and Egypt, where she'll also promote her Be Best initiative, which, amongst other things, tackles cyberbullying. Now, the jury's out on how well her messages are likely to go down with her hosts, who might not have forgotten or indeed forgiven how her husband referred to their countries as, and I quote, shitholes. The big question. Can Melania reset US-African relations? You're grinning away like a Cheshire cat there, Charles. I suppose we all, are. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I guess that someone's got to do this journey and it can only be Melania because she hasn't really been tainted by
1: her husband's bombast. Well, so that's a really good question. First of all, I'm grinning in part because I finally learned that we can use the word shithole on the air. Um, But the reason why... I wasn't sure whether we could, but I've been told that we're okay on that one. We are now. Uh, (laughs) So I've been trying to think of first ladies who've had to go on foreign trips to essentially mop up after their husbands. And I had to scratch my head, but I ultimately came to Laura Bush who made several trips to Africa as first lady. And I really don't think that W, um, her husband, President George W. Bush, really was anybody's favorite on the global scene. Um, you know, he sort of softened his his image in Africa a little bit after he made a major contribution to the anti-AIDS effort on the continent. Um, but really, um, Melania is walking into an absolute trap uh, where one false move and she will set back not just her own trip, but the entire administration in its relations with Africa. You know, she's keeping it fairly safe. Um, She is not going to make any foreign policy pronouncements, you know, intentionally or by accident. We hope she's not meeting I'm pretty sure with any heads of state, while she's on this trip, she's sticking mostly to charitable and other social causes. She's meeting with some other first ladies And she's going, by and large, to fairly stable African countries. Um, Ghana is one of the most politically stable countries in West Africa. Malawi is a peaceful, stable, competitive democracy. Um, That's all in pretty good shape. Let's hope she doesn't go look for Barack Obama's birthplace in (laughs) Kenya, because we must remember that she was Early on, a birther along with her husband. I think the difficult bit for her is going to be in Egypt, uh, where, of course, uh, the country is run by um, Abdullah Fattah al-Sisi, who seized control in a coup, having overthrown Mohamed Morsi in 2013. So that's a little bit more sensitive for her. Um, I suppose everybody in the White House and everybody on... Um, Her Air Force jet has got their fingers crossed that this goes smoothly.
0: Right, but the chances are, Mary, that she's not likely to stray into troubled waters. She will stick to the script because she's surrounded by adults. Some of the same adults who probably supervise her husband.
2: (laughs) Well, yes, and um, to a large extent, I think you can probably say that to the extent that she's been visible at all in and around Washington, she has um, generally behaved as an adult. Um, Also, she'll be, as it were, um, the sort of brand leader for USAID, for the aid operation on the African continent, as previous First Ladies have been. And I think maybe um, you can imagine the pictures that could, at best... Um, see her maybe taking the late Princess Diana as her role model. Um, But I agree that I think the Egypt leg is um, potentially problematic um, because not only um, is General Sisi in charge as the result of what is effectively a military coup, but Egypt, during the, the the. what we called the Arab Spring, um, was actually one of the biggest miscalculations of American foreign policy. Um, So maybe she's there to show the flag and try and somehow um, negate that. Um, But it's not a comfortable place for um, a senior American person, even the First Lady, to be. Mm,
0: Which begs the question, I guess, Charles, why sent her there? Why did they have to put Egypt on the list? Why not choose somewhere else. I mean, for example, Mr. Trump made some remarks about the South African government, which didn't go down terribly well. So surely South Africa would have been one country to uh, perhaps mend some bridges with.
1: Yeah, I wonder why they've got the itinerary that they have. And, you know, this comes on the heels of President Trump's statement at the opening of the United Nations General Assembly in New York just last week, where he said, we are only going to work with countries that are our friends. And this was particularly in the arena of providing foreign aid. So we have to assume that the countries that Melania Trump is visiting are friends either currently or aspirationally of the United States. Now, Egypt was... Uh, For a very long time, the United States number one ally in the Middle East. And of course, there were billions of dollars flowing from the United States to Egypt in military and other economic support. That all underwent a major hiccup after the coup, as we've been talking about, after the Arab Spring and the results of of the military activities in 2013 i think that this is probably a little bit of soft power aimed at egypt trying to smooth out the relationship there set it on more solid ground and create uh the foundation perhaps i'm using a lot of grounded analogies here but create the foundation perhaps for a sort of reanimation of U.S.-Egyptian ties. Mm. And certainly Mr.
0: Trump does appear to admire President al-Sisi as one of these strong (laughs) men. um, But isn't there a worry, I guess, that if if Melania does actually do something very positive while she's out there, that her husband can actually reverse it?
2: (laughs) 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 <laughs> well, I suppose you, you you could see it like that, um, but we'll have to see how she gets on. Um, but I think there's another aspect maybe also to her Egypt trip, um, which is that Egypt and Russia have been getting together um, rather interestingly. Um, since the break with the United States um, and I think it's you know there's a long um, there's a long tradition between Egypt and Russia that goes back to Soviet times that Russia is busy trying to rekindle um, so whether it'll be that easy um, to reverse tracks or even have a sort of equilibrium between the US and Russia um, I think that may be more difficult and it may be beyond um, a first lady even of um, Melania's stature
0: she might walk well- surprise us all. You're thing to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Mary Dejevsky and Charles Hecker. Coming up next, it has been two years since Britain voted to leave the EU and Americans elected a reality TV star to the White House. Where does this leave the liberal left? And is it time to get the public involved in shaping the transport systems of the future? This is Midori House. Stay tuned.
3: Curtains up. Premiering in Monocle's October issue is our very first culture preview. From big box film releases to the art market's latest moves, we guide you through all you need to watch, see and read this autumn. On our global tour, we take a peek into Helsinki's newest museum to find out how Finland's art scene is stepping up its game and consider the future of Nordic noir. Is the Scandi bubble about to burst? Not to mention more finds from Switzerland to Taiwan. In our fashion pages, our bi-annual top 50 will deliver all the scarves, coats and knits you need to keep cosy and suitably sharp. Autumnal breeze or not, Tom Ford isn't afraid to bear it all. We hear from the American designer on why it's the perfect time to launch a line of underwear. We sit down with Iceland's Prime Minister to find out how the left-wing environmentalist thawed her countrymen's suspicion of politicians. And get a few tips from developers and retailers, making the high street worth celebrating. Plus, we meet the architects rethinking our homes for a more sustainable future. The Monocle October issue is out now on all good newsstands. Do get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com.
0: You're back with Midori House. I'm Juliet Foster. Still with me are Mary Dajewski and Charles Hecker. Now, it is hard being a liberal. Brexit, the election of a reality TV star to the White House and the rise of right-wing populist parties in Europe is a monumental gut punch to a world order that once seemed beyond challenge. With the right now firmly in the political driving seat, resistance is the new default position for worried liberals. Do they really have the will to scupper Brexit, score big in November's US midterms and take things back to how they used to be? Or has the resistance simply run out of steam? It's a very big question to pose, really. But before we try to address it, when we talk about the liberal resistance, what exactly are we talking about?
2: Well, this is very, very difficult to define because um, the genesis of this idea that maybe the resistance has um, peaked and may already be starting to decline um, was the article um, a few weeks ago um, in the US press, which Purported to be from a member of the Trump administration saying that basically he and various others were mounting a sort of internal resistance um, to protect Trump from himself, that they weren't actually trying completely to sabotage him, but they were trying to, as it were, preempt the worst possible mistakes and to make things sort of just about acceptable um, until such time as the the great danger would be over. Now, I have two problems with this. Um, one of them is that I'm not sure that the trend of history, as it were, is with the um, nice moderate liberals. It rather depends on whether you think that um, Trump is a one-term flash in the pan, an anomaly, um, or whether he's actually... Um, indicative of something bigger um, and the same applies to Brexit and in that case um, resistance is going to look pretty pathetic um, and may already be doomed um, and the other thing is that the, um, the methods um, being used by the uh, moderate resistance um, the trouble is that compared with the bombast being used mm-hmm. by the other side um, it really doesn't look as though they're on equal terms and
0: mm-hmm. They don't actually see themselves as resistance. I guess that they would say, look, there are problems and we're simply flagging them up. The difficulty is that they're being shouted down. There are very few of them and
1: the tide has gone the other way. Well, the other difficulty really is that there appear to be quite a number of things to resist against. We're not just talking about politics. We're talking about relationship between the sexes. We're talking about gender in general. We're talking about a series of if we're talking about sort of historical trends, we're talking about a series of behaviors that were once accepted in politics, in business, in cultural, and in in all sorts of social contexts that we're now feeling the need to push back against. These were things that were probably always wrong, but were at one point or another were somehow socially tolerated or were at least part of what appeared to be the norm of the times. And I think what's triggered all of this really is very, very broad generational and technological change, which is allowing us to push back against uh, behaviors that we no longer want to tolerate. And there's just so much it appears to resist against. The problem with whether the center left or, or the liberal wing is running out of steam is the fact that this is generational change. And you can't, by putting up a few posts on Instagram or by sending out a few tweets, you cannot change the course of decades of behaviour. And, and, you know, I don't think we would have had Martin Luther King or Gandhi sort of throwing their hands up in the air in frustration um, if they didn't get all the change that they spent their entire lives working for, if they didn't get it after a few posts on social media.
0: Yeah, because this is is the much broader picture as well, which you touched on, Mary, this idea about the trend of history, because Mm -hmm. when we look at where we are now, there is this sense of inevitability, because you could argue, I guess, that perhaps liberals are partly to blame for where we are now because clearly they were people who were very, very angry. They felt left behind by globalisation. They felt that they were being persecuted because they were using terms of references which liberals decried as politically incorrect. And this was the chance to actually seize things back.
2: Yes. And I think that um, the other thing um, we, um, if I might um, be as bold as to speak, if you like, for the resistance, um, (laughs) that we have to recognize is that um, we can't at the same time talk about democracy and say that this is wrong, that these people are in power or that Brexit won or whatever, because the, the other side used the democratic process and they won and so i think you know if we want to win in return we have to we have to use the diplomatic the, the the democratic process in the same way we can't turn around and say well you know we don't like the fact that you won we're going to change the rules i don't think you can do that
1: i wonder if actually part of the problem is not so much that you know it's it, it's we do have to work through this genera- genera- generational change but I think that we have to stop calling it the resistance because, yes, the word itself implies fatigue at some point. And, and at some point, at that point, we have to stop resisting and start doing things differently and just move forward because you can only hold your finger in the dam Mm. for so long before the floodwaters overtake you.
0: Right, and trying to to understand why the other side thinks the way that it does. But look, on the subject of resistance, let's stay with it because you could argue that it perhaps applies very well to, to our final subject because New York has America's largest bus system, but it is also the slowest. Now, city officials are trying to work out how to improve things by committing to a 28-point plan to fix the various problems. Late running buses and timetables that could pass for works of fiction are the bane of commuters around the world, which begs the question whether it is time for planners to give the public a much bigger say in the design of urban transport networks. Now, we've all got stories to tell about buses and trains not running on time etc but Mary from your point of view do you think (laughs) that it would really make that much difference if the likes of you and I were actually welcomed
2: into these town planning meetings and we designed our own bus services? Well the reason you're saying that is because I sort of dashed into the studio at about minus two minutes um, largely because I'd spent a long time on the London bus which I can't believe um, is any quicker than a New York City bus Um, but I have to say that I don't want a place in the consultation. I wanted to drive that bus today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a licence to do that? (laughs) Not yet.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't, know, I don't know how special this makes me, but I have to tell you both that I actually got an email the other day from TFL, Transport for London, which runs the buses and the underground and all of public transportation, and they invited me to participate in a consultation. Now, I don't think this is anything really all that special, and I certainly don't expect some sort of great town hall meeting with coffee and donuts. It's all going to be online. But they wanted to know what I thought about the 149, the 48, and the 55, which are my three <laughs> favorite buses in London. And so themselves. So they score a clear 10 if you had to judge them, 10 out of 10. Well, you know, I'd like to see what comes out of this consultation process, process. and you can believe that I'm going to take part and I'm going to send them my specific thinkings on the 149, the 48 <laughs> and the 55 in minute detail um, and we'll see if anything comes about this because I think one of the greatest frustrations of everybody who rides a London bus is getting struck, stuck in traffic jams made up of London buses um, and that's happening more and more these right, days. Right, but
0: I guess that the final big question has to be that if you get more people involved in theory that means that they're more empowered does it necessarily mean that more of us are going to use this service because we've had a hand in its design
2: well i think one of the most interesting things at the moment and here in new york and london are very similar is that use of public transport after rising consistently for decades has started to fall and one of the reasons people are saying is that It's actually so slow. It's got so slow. The other reason is that more people are working from home, fewer people are commuting.
0: Okay, then, on that profound note, that is where we will have to leave it. I I can see you were chomping at the bit to tell us more about the bus, but we can talk about it later. But we have actually reached the end of today's show. Charles Hecker and Mary Deschewski, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Barbara Maimone. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next, then at 1900 hours. It is The Urbanist. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 22. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, that's 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster, goodbye.